as far as the color, you know, people have a lot of differences of opinion on that. I'll give you mine and I'll, I'll tell you what has worked very well for me and, and whenever I prescribed it, my pilot patients loved it. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes to search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This episode, we're going to be investigating vision science and how it relates to your flying, tips on looking after your eyesight, good habits to help you better see obstacles, and some of the considerations for us as we get older about our vision and trying to extend our flying career. So a big thanks to Bob Fierst and Lynette Sims from Utilities Aviation Specialists for introducing me to today's guest. Dr. Warren Dehan has been an aviation vision specialist for 48 years and is considered the world's leading expert in the field. Warren holds a whole slew of ratings. So he's ATPL, uh, multi-engine. He's got a helicopter CPL, I think it is. He's uh, flown gliders, lighter than air, and a seaplane rating. He's also a CFII, uh, multi-engine. Uh, he's got a glider and instrument and instructor ratings there as well. So he's flown everything from 737s to Piper Cubs and R22s. He's also the author of two books. So the first one, Moving Through the Ratings, Passing from a Private to Professional Pilot, and The Optometrist and Ophthalmologist's Guide to Pilot's Vision. So the second one is the one you want to go and buy and give it to your, uh, your doctor, your AFMED on your next medical. A quick plug for our episode sponsors, and then we'll get straight into the interview. So if anyone in your network owns or works at an aviation training organization, that might be a, a flight school or a theory school, or even an engineering trade academy, and you know they could do with more students on the books and to improve their website or their social media, then you'll be doing them a, a big favor by sending them over to trainmorepilots.com where they can access information about doing business smarter and leveraging the internet in their aviation training business. That's over at trainmorepilots.com. So Warren Dehart on the on the line with us, and Warren, thank you very much for being able to join us today. My pleasure. Now, Warren, we're going to jump around over a few different sort of topics here, but I was going to see, can you just describe what is vision science for listeners and give a bit of a background to that as a specialty? Well, of course, it's the study of how we see and how we perceive what we see, and it's basically made up of three components arbitrarily divided. One has to do with the light from the scene. Obviously, if we don't have any light, we're not going to be able to have a visual perception. The second component is the collector of the light, and that is the eye, of course. And the third, and almost the most important part of it, is the processing that goes on in the brain. So it takes all three in order for us to have a visual perception. And the a perception really is a decision. It's a decision about what's out there or what exists in the real world. So that's why the, the brain plays such an important part. I will break each of those three down as we go through. Um, your specialty is obviously you know, aviation-based. Why aviation, and what's your sort of personal involvement, and, and how did you get started in aviation? Well, I started flying before I even went up to Berkeley to optometry school. I had a private pilot certificate in a wonderful 65-horse 1947 BC-12D Taylor craft, and uh, then uh, schooling took many years, and and um, after that was through, it took several years to get established in my clinical practice of eye care. Finally, I had a little money, and I started collecting ratings, and uh, eventually got all the way through to um, multi-engine airline transport pilot certificate, 
as far as the grade of certificate, and I also managed to get um, ratings in all four categories that existed at the time. Now, of course, we have a, an additional category. I think it's called Powered Left, and that one's too expensive. Fair enough. And so you're talking, uh, I don't know, have you, have you done hot air ballooning, gliding? What sort of, what are some of the, the, the more different things you've done? Yes, um, of course, single and multi-engine airplanes, uh, glider. Um, I'm also a, a glider instructor as well as an airplane instructor. Then I also have a commercial helicopter certificate and I have a lighter than air certificate uh, in hot air balloons. And I also picked up a seaplane rating across along the way. Sounds like you've had a, a hand at uh, everything that's out there almost, as you said. Have you got a, a particular favorite sort of memory or favorite aircraft? Oh, that would be hard to pick. They're all um, so different and they each have their own uh, their own thing that makes them fun. I, I mostly fly airplanes, but uh, if I had to pick one, and if I had the money, it would be helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> the money seems to be the uh, the big part of that equation for for most folks. Yes, um, here in Boulder, a few years ago, I had a case that involved helicopters, so I I went out and and took some recurrent training and. I got to where I could fly it again, uh, but uh, oh, what did it cost? Something like four hundred and some dollars an hour with the instructor. So uh, uh, it's pretty expensive. Yeah, and most of us, uh, yeah, we're always trying to find someone else to pay for our flying. On the medical side, Warren, can you just quickly talk uh, folks through just your medical background and uh, you know how you got into optometrist and, and then I guess into the, the vision science um, stream of things? Yes, when I was a teenager and started to become myopic, nearsighted, I went to an optometrist who did training for that and uh, I think that sort of planted the seed when I started regular college I went into pre-med or pre-health professional program uh, knowing that I could go a lot of different ways but eventually I I realized that eye care was my choice and so I went to the uh, University of California at Berkeley that has of course we think the best optometry school in the country I'm sure People from the other schools feel that way about theirs too. <laughs> yep. And uh, as you you went through and you did so your own private practice in the clinic type thing, but then you've you've done research, you know, specifically on on aviation and and vision. Can you give an example of like one of the the research projects you would have done? Well, when I was in practice, um, I had two partners. Uh, one of them was. Uh, PhD in aeronautical engineering and so he had done a lot of research and and this uh, made us attractive to several of the companies as far as doing studies and so we performed studies on contact lenses and contact lens solutions but we also did some really interesting studies with pilots both airline pilots, commercial pilots, and even private pilots on different types of lenses. Some years ago, the pilots were having quite a problem seeing things on the overhead panel, and so one of the companies invented certain lenses for that. And so our project was to fit several of them and and uh, get their feedback, and it was uh, interesting. It seems like there isn't as much need for that now, although uh, I've heard of some airline pilots taking their uh, half eyes and turning them upside down <laughs> so that they can <laughs> lens see the panel. <laughs> and, and I know you've, you've written a couple of different books and articles and things like that, but uh, one of them is for ophthalmologists um, to talk about you know the what they need to know about uh, pilots and about flying. So the average ophthalmologist out there 
what's their sort of knowledge about um, the eyesight issues that, that pilots normally face? Is it is it low? Is it sort of well-known throughout the industry? What sort of feedback did you get from, from the book? What I found was that um, a lot of patients would come to me because they'd been disappointed by the care they received by their eye specialists, either optometrists or ophthalmologists. And it was clear that there was a lack of understanding about the special needs of pilots. They they uh, have multiple directions of gaze, multiple focal distances, and um, you know the need for excellent distance vision, but also now the need for excellent near vision. There are color vision issues. Uh, especially as they started getting into the video panels. And so I started out to write a brochure with some hints for eye doctors about how to take care of pilots, and it developed into an entire book. Excellent. That's the way some of these projects start out. And, and off the back of that research in the book and, and you know, your involvement in aviation, you've obviously been involved in several investigations and, and legal uh, sort of cases. And again, I was just wondering if there's one that sort of stands out that you can talk to that listeners would you know, be able to take something away from. Yes. Well, what happened was because I was developing a pilot's eye specialty practice, when a lawyer would call some eye specialist to be an expert, they'd always refer them to me. And that eventually got so busy that after 30 years, I actually sold out my clinical practice to my partner's. And uh, since then, I've just been consulting as an expert witness. The cases um, are just, you know, so varied because truly visual perception works the same whether you're on the land or on the water or in the air. And I've had cases in, in all of those. But aviation cases have been the vast majority because of my dual interest as a pilot. I tend to get a lot of mid-air collisions, wire strikes in helicopters and airplanes and balloons. I worked on the Aviano-Italy-Gontola strike, but um, the wire strike and cable strike accidents, I would say, are the, the most interesting of all the cases. We had um, Bob Fierst on, you know, one of the very first episodes and talk about sort of the you know safety in the low-level environment. And there's a really good video on that episode and Bob refers to where you talk about the, you know, the vision aspects of, of uh, the wire strikes. So we might come back to, you know, specifics of what we can do in the cockpit to improve our vision and things like that. But well, I was wondering if we can dive back into the, the three parts. So you said, you said, you know, the, the light, the collector and the processing. And if we could step through those three parts and I guess coming from a pilot point of view of, um, you know, what, what's the key things to take away from each of those three components of, of vision? The first and foremost point to make, I think, is that in so many of these accidents, we find that the wire, they would have been able to see the wire if they had been looking at appropriate times. And... So distraction, I think, is a key issue. The other thing is that pilots have the misconception that they will be able to see the wires or cable in time. And, of course, many times you can, and some of them have, you know, better than human vision and probably can see them most of the time, but you can't count on seeing them all of the time. And of course, in the United States, anything below 200 feet and away from an airport is uh, not required to be marked or even any notice given to the FAA. So you have to assume that everything below 200 feet and some things above 200 feet are not going to be marked. And if you want to be a safe pilot, you need to always assume the worst. And the worst is that when you're flying down in that environment, you won't see it in time. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. 
So you have to assume that's going to happen. Therefore, the only safe thing to do, of course, is to do a recon before you go down. And when you do that, you bring all three of those aspects of visual perception into play. First of all, the light from the scene. You give yourself the opportunity to see reflections from the lines and to see the structures, the supporting structures, see the shadow on the water below if it goes over the, if they're going over water. And so by doing a recon first, you give yourself the opportunity to sample the light from every possible advantageous point. Then as far as the collector, of course, obviously the important thing is to to have your vision corrected to maximum visual acuity. And then, of course, to wear the proper sun protection if, if you need it, if it is that type of situation. And then finally, of course, is the neurological processing. And that basically means paying attention, being alert, looking very closely, not being distracted. Don't turn your head to talk to people in the cockpit. There's a big temptation for people to do that. That's the wrong thing to do, and you don't need to look at people. You don't need to have eye contact with your passengers. You need to be looking out. You need to be looking ahead. Um, You need to aim those collectors at, at what you need to see. It's interesting, actually, that last point, because in multi-crew situations and things like that, like that visual contact with someone as you're communicating is still such a, you know, a fairly strong uh, sort of driver there that, uh, you know, you're right with the intercoms and things like that, you'd be totally looking at the window and talk to someone, but it still seems a, a very human thing to, to look across a cockpit while you're communicating. Yes, and in fact, you know, if you're if you're sitting in a room or talking to someone and and you don't look at them, it's considered impolite. <laughs> yeah. But in an airplane, to do that is dangerous, or in a helicopter, or, or a glider, or, or any kind of aircraft. If we can break down a couple of things then, so if we talk about the collector and the eye, so you know, when we do our normal human factors training, you know, we learn about you know, rods and cones and, and the, the parts that make up the eye. In the, the studies that have been doing at the moment, research, is there anything new that's coming out in the sort of last 10 years or so about the makeup of the eye as far as it, how it physically works and and how we actually turn that light into a into a signal that's relevant for pilots? It's very interesting because the retina embryologically is more like brain tissue uh, than um, you know than than external sensors and that's why a great deal of processing actually takes place on the retina itself, when one cell is is uh, received light, is stimulated, it actually can inhibit cells next to it. And so that processing that takes place on the retina then sends up the key features of what we're looking at. It would be impossible to send up a picture like a video camera and obtain the kind of kind of information that we do get. And so it's really a coding process. The key features are sent up and those key features then are compared in the brain to areas of memory and association. And we then come up with a perception and that's why memory and perception plays, memory and past perceptions play such an important part in how we perceive things. So in many cases, we're not actually seeing what's physically in front of us. It's like there's so many of those steps in that processing before we actually get to, to make a decision on it that you're kind of looking at a, at a filtered reality in some cases. I don't know, is that a, is that a false statement or is that, is that correct? Well, you know, that's really true. There there were some interesting um, observations on people who had been blind from birth and grew to 
adulthood, and then there became available a type of operation that gave them vision for the first time. And when they were shown objects that they were completely familiar with by touch, they didn't know what they were. For example, they would be shown a telephone, and they did not know what it was until they then touched it and made this hand-eye coordination link in their experience. And after that, they could look at a telephone and tell you, yep, that's a telephone. I talk on that telephone. So it goes to show you how important uh, memory and experience is. And so it's sometimes been said that what we see is only a memory. Okay. Warren, I've got a heap of points here I wanted to, to cover with you. And again, trying to keep it all aviation related. So things like uh, binocular vision and, and rate of change. So uh, Sean Coyle has been a, a past guest on the show and in his book about auto rotations, he talks about in the flare at the bottom of the auto rotation, that's much easier to judge forward sort of motion than it is vertical motion because we've got the, our eyes in the front of the head. Is there data around that and is there other sort of information that we can use in the cockpit or, or need to be aware about as far as you know binocular vision, where our eyes are located in the head uh, and sort of practical things like that? Well, first thing to, to know about is that stereopsis, which requires two eyes, is most effective close-up things we can hold in our hands. And as you move out, the distance between the eyes becomes very small in relation to the distance away of what you're looking at. And so stereopsis becomes less and less important. In fact, um, some people say beyond about somewhere between 20 feet and 20 yards, it is essentially useless. And so most of the ways that we judge depth and distance are work just as well with one eye as with two. Most of the cues are monocular, in other words. Stereopsis is, is only one of the cues, and, and it's really the only one that requires two eyes. And so it's important in a helicopter, obviously, especially when you're hovering or if you're you know, trying to deal with something close to the machine. But I remember in my training that my, my instructor pointed out something very interesting when when I was he was telling me to you know hold altitude in a in a hover, um, you know, a couple thousand feet above the ground, and I was looking at the ground and it was very difficult to do it that way. But when he told me, no, 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 look straight out at uh, the mountains or the building off in the distance, and it was amazing then how easy it became to hold the proper altitude without being able to look at the altimeter. So I think what you're saying about uh, what Sean said is is true, but we can use other ways to, to cope with that. This might be tied to that then, you know, that blooming effect as you're flying towards another aircraft or an obstacle, that it it seems, you know, small, 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 and then all of a sudden it starts to rapidly get larger. Is that to do with stereopsis or is that to do with just a resolution of, you know, how, how fine an angle you can discern? It's because the visual angle tends to go up logarithmically and it's not due to stereopsis at all. You know, until you get very close, of course. Um, you know, you're talking about the blossom effect that happens just before a mid-air collision. Yeah. And um, obviously, for mid-air collision avoidance, you need to see things much further away um, where stereopsis would not even enter into it. You're... You know, you're basically either detecting a spot if it's above the horizon or against a blank field, or if it has a background, you're differentiating. And there's 
there are different kinds of visual limits for those things. And obviously, the differentiation limit is more critical and more difficult. So, for example, you might be able to pick out um, another helicopter several miles away if it's above the horizon. But if it's against a background and below you and below the horizon, it becomes much more difficult. Is there a threshold there? You know, you have the air superiority gray uh, on, on your fighters and, and sort of fixed wing aircraft and things like that. Between there has to be a, a different you know, a difference in in shading or color uh, between the background and the object before it'll it'll trip a, a signal on the, on the retina. Does that happen at the at the cell level? Is that happening on the on the retina? Or is that part of the, the processing in the brain? Well, I think you're talking about uh, contrast there. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. So before you can pick up a, a difference in something, um, it, it must meet a certain threshold. Yes, but it's not quite as simple as that. It's not just a matter of um, um, a difference between the border of the aircraft and the border of its background because you also have, uh, besides brightness contrast, you have color contrast. You can have movement. You can have movement of a shape over a background. You can have movement against the background. You can have movement in your windscreen. You know, there if it's flashing, if it has flashing lights, obviously that can be a factor. So there's really a, a whole bunch of factors that affect how difficult it will be to visually acquire another aircraft. All right. All right. And I guess, again, trying to, so folks can listen to this and take away something that they can you know, put into, into use in their next flight. Using that sort of information, is there a current best practice if you're teaching someone how to visually scan the sky in front of them uh, for their you know, VFR flight and looking out? Is there a, a, a current best practice about sort of looking you know, 10 degrees, stopping, pausing the eye, moving the eye again, pausing? What's the, the best method for, for VFR lookout? Well, here in the US, um, the FAA has put out some some information on that, and they have this very interesting diagram of in which you search 15-degree segments left and right, and you know that's all very interesting. But I don't know of anybody that ever does that uh, over and over during a cruising flight, for example. And it assumes, you know, all else being equal, but in situations where mid-air collisions are likely to happen, everything is not equal. And so when I was teaching flying, I tried to emphasize the fact that the you have priorities about where to look. So, for example, if you're in a traffic pattern, obviously you want to watch where you're going so you don't overrun somebody. But you also know where other aircraft are likely to be flying in the traffic pattern. So there you have a key as to where you should be looking. So people need to prioritize where they look. They need to think about where the danger can come from, where the other aircraft are likely to be. They need to keep in in mind that even though we're supposed to fly predictable patterns. Not everybody does. So there you're looking at at least secondary priorities. I need to use your peripheral vision. Interestingly enough, even though the peripheral vision is not nearly as clear as our central vision, it nevertheless is optimized for motion detection. Uh, Take, for example, when a hunter is walking in the woods, if he had to examine every part of his scene by looking directly at it with his central vision, he would be extremely busy. But instead, he 
kind of takes a soft look with his central vision and tries to be very aware of what's happening peripherally. And so if there's a little motion off to the side, then he looks over at it with a central vision. And that's what we need to do when we're flying too. So we do need to keep our our head, body, eyes moving. There's no doubt about that. But we need to, in a sense, concentrate on what's happening peripherally also. Now, I was always taught, and I guess when I'm flying, how conscious of it or not, but to at least pause the eye as you look around. Because if, you, if you're if continually moving the eye in a scan and you're always moving, then your whole scene is moving. Whereas if you actually stop occasionally and just look in the, in the one, you know, one point in the sky, you give that peripheral vision and that motion detection a chance to actually work. Yes, as, as a matter of fact, you really don't see while your eye is in motion. So you do have to make movements to, you know, one position and then the other. But of course, you can make them very quickly. Yeah. With helicopters, is there particular things, and the two things I'm thinking about is, you know, vibration and, and flicker from the rotors. You know, can you talk about those, or is there any other particular helicopter uh, vision things we need to be careful of? The most important thing, I think, for for helicopter pilots is, again, to accept the fact that you won't be able to see things in time. And so many of the accidents that I've been involved in involve a situation where, for example, a recent one that pilot flew down into a canyon and I think he was probably skimming and and he hit a cable at 40 feet. Had not done any recon, had never been there before. He thought he could see things in time. So I think one of the most important things, first of all, is just accept the fact that you're not going to see wires and cables in time. And so you must do that recon before you go down there. Does the vibration in a helicopter play any part in the actual, you know, physical, the collecting process of, of vision? Hopefully the helicopter won't be vibrating that much. I wouldn't think so. Okay. A lot of their crew are, are getting on these days in, in age. What are the most common sort of eye diseases that uh, folks will start hitting or uh, would so expect to see as they, they grow older in their aircrew medicals? Hmm. Well, most people are going to get cataracts at some point. Um, and fortunately, nowadays, that's not a big deal. The cataracts can be removed. It's, you know, it's the crystalline lens. It, it just tends to get a little more tinted and a little cloudier every year. It's said that even in the absence of cataracts at 60, about half as much light gets through the crystalline lens as when we're a child. And as time goes along, it it gets cloudier, and they simply uh, emulsify it and suck it out and put in a better one. And at that time, they can... Uh, correct the nearsightedness, myopia, or the farsightedness, hyperopia, or the astigmatism. And there are even implantable lenses now that uh, have a range of focus between distance and intermediate or distance and near. So that's one thing that'll happen to all of us, and it's not serious, and cataract surgery is almost always very successful. Of course, um, presbyopia is another factor. We start out our lives with very flexible lenses, and each year they become firmer and firmer, and finally we notice in our 40s or so that it's a little hard to focus up close. And so we need some kind of uh, lenses to adjust for that. Another big one nowadays with... uh, the uh, current weight of our population is that because of the overweight and, and obesity, we're seeing a lot of people get diabetes. 
and that just can play havoc with vision. It can cause the vessels to hemorrhage and the treatment for diabetic retinopathy often is basically cauterizing spots with a laser beam. So then you lose part of your visual field. It's a serious thing. So, you know, I hate to say it, but it's all about diet and exercise and a very important thing for pilots, just as with everyone, is to maintain a proper weight so that uh, they hopefully can put off the risk of diabetes. If a person lives long enough, of course, they're probably going to get macular degeneration. Some people even get it uh, as young as 60. And there didn't used to be treatments for that, but there are now. And so early detection of macular degeneration is really very important. Uh, whereas uh, even 20 years ago, it didn't make any difference whether you diagnosed it early or not. They couldn't really do anything for it. But now it is important. So having regular eye exams for that is, is very important. Of course, glaucoma can be serious for pilots because if the glaucoma is left untreated and, and it advances, the person can have visual field loss. And it's not that you can't get a special issuance if it isn't too far advanced. And uh, what's especially good is if the field loss in one eye is in a different place than the field loss in the other eye so that when both eyes are used together, you still have a complete visual field. But um, that's another thing that often has no pain with it, open angle glaucoma. And so the only way to discover it early and get treatment is to have regular eye exams. That's very important. A lot of pilots are getting LASIK and, uh, or, or PRK, and those, of course, um, are a little bit hard on the cornea, despite what the surgeons would like you to believe. Um, each time the eye is operated on for anything, the cornea tends to lose some of the cells that line the back part of the cornea, the endothelium, and it doesn't really regenerate new cells. The ones that are left just get larger, but there's a limit to how far that can go. And so some of us are wondering whether these people that have had LASIK when they get to be uh, seniors are they going to be candidates for, for corneal transplants? So we don't know the answer to that because LASIK hasn't been around that many years yet, but that is a possibility. Uh, the other thing we need to mention about LASIK is that sometimes it doesn't work, and if a pilot needs to have 20-20 vision to qualify for the medical certificate that he needs, in the U.S. for uh, second class or first class. And if they've had LASIK, there are some times when they can't be corrected to 2020 after that by any means. It's a very small risk, but it is something a pilot has to keep in mind. For a non-pilot, you know, it's probably not a big deal if if the LASIK doesn't come out perfectly. Maybe they can be corrected to 2025 or 2030 and you know, that's fine for most things, for driving and all. But when you go to get your medical certificate, if you need 2020 and you can't get it, that could affect your career. So LASIK is a wonderful thing, and so many people are doing it nowadays. But if you're a pilot, you need to think about the risk if it if you're that one in a hundred that doesn't turn out the best. Is there other options coming online for the surgery side of things? Or is LASIK still, sorry, LASIK still the, you know, like there's still the best option out there at the moment? Uh, no, there, there are 
lens implants to correct the refractive error. There's what's called a clear lens lensectomy. And basically what that means is even though you don't have a cataract, we're going to do cataract surgery. So the lens is still clear. It's not cloudy, but we're going to take it out and put in one that's going to give you absolutely clear vision. Oh, there's work on artificial corneas. I mean, there's so much research going on now. I'm sure we're going to be coming up with some fantastic solutions in the future. So if someone's on that sort of um, borderline with it, with thinking about getting surgery done, is it, you know, is there anything right around the corner that you'd say, oh, hang off for a year or two? Or um, is it good enough now? I know you said the sort of that, that risk for the, for the elastic surgery, but can you see things coming in the pipeline where you say, hey, if you just waited two or three years, you know, there'd be this really optimal solution or is it still sort of not really clear? I wouldn't say there's anything just around the corner that's going to reduce the risk even further, um, if that's what you mean. However, that said, it's not entirely like computers, but it's something like computers where we say the computer you buy today is going to be obsolete in six months. So if you always wait for the better computer, you'll never get a computer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. How does UV damage play into those sort of diseases? And if we talk about, you know, what sort of sunglasses should folks be trying to get as, you know, in terms of even looking at the, the colors of lenses? Well, first of all, if you're an outdoor person, sunglasses are extremely important because one of the things that causes that crystalline lens in your eye to get cloudy is the sun. And so in sunglasses as well as in non-sunglasses, you know, clear prescription glasses, you must always get an ultraviolet screen. That's very, very important. And some sunglasses, um, the cheap ones that you might buy, may fool you into thinking they're blocking the ultraviolet because they're a colored lens, but they may not be blocking it very well at all. So they really have to be manufactured properly. As far as the color, you know, people have a lot of differences of opinion on that. I'll, I'll give you mine and I'll, I'll tell you what has worked very well for me and, and whenever I prescribed it, uh, my pilot patients loved it. It's a lens that lets through the entire spectrum, but selectively filters the light toward the blue end. It's not a blue blocker. It still lets some blue through, so that if you're looking at a pictorial display that has you know, all of the colors in it, you're still able to see what the colors are. You don't want to get a, a colored lens that obscures some of the color detail that you need to see. But basically, it, it does selectively filter some of the wavelengths. So we say it tends to monochromatize. It tends to let through more of a... Um, narrow spectral band that actually improves the focus and actually sharpens your vision because the eye has a certain amount of chromatic aberration built into it. So that helps take care of that. And you also just tend to see better through haze with those. So that's the way I've always had mine made and that's what I prescribed regularly and I think there's a lot of science of optics to back up why that works well. We got uh, issued in the army at one stage these these sunglasses, and no one wore them because they were these most dorky looking uh, things with the the side protection, and and you just wouldn't be seen in public wearing them uh, from the design point of view. But how important is that blocking the the sun on on the side of the eyes, where you, you know, sanded sunglasses are just the the lens in front. 
um, you, you know, how much should we be thinking about the that sort of side protection? Well, if you're going to be in situations where you're going to have direct sun coming in at the side, it is a factor. However, you know, most glasses do have a certain concavity to them, and they tend to block most of that anyway. And of course, it's it's mainly going to that light is mainly going to do kind of a side hit on the cornea, uh, and probably not a lot of it is going to actually get to the crystalline lens or the retina. So that said, obviously, if you look at the glasses that mountain climbers use, they have all those shields because they have such extreme sun radiation, and it's hitting them from all directions. So much of it reflects up from the snow. For the average wearer, however, you know, you probably don't need all those shields. One other thing, of course, that helps a lot if you're an outdoor person is a good sun hat, broad brim sun hat. Another sort of cockpit consideration there, Warren, is, uh, you know, and again, I haven't seen it because I haven't, I haven't worn them, but people talk about the polarized lenses and the uh, the perspex of the plastic um, sort of windshields on, on aircraft that you can get you know cross polarization and you can sort of get you know blank spots in, in your vision that way is there any information out there about that yes because of that it, it can be very disconcerting you know polaroids are really good for fishermen where the sun can hit that just wrong angle off the water I don't recommend them for pilots. You, you can get too many extraneous issues with them. The glass screen, or you know, the sort of glass cockpits and the, and the screens in the cockpits are going to be something that comes in more and more aircraft. Is there any change in vision, sort of, with that? The fact that, you know we're looking at iPads and phones and, and computer screens and jumping in a you know cockpit with with glass screens and things. Is there any data coming out or any studies about that as just as far as the, the difference in focal length and use of the eye in, in the cockpit? Let's see. Are, are you asking about um, if the screen itself might alter the um, refraction of the light? Is that it? Well, I'm not sure. I guess the, the idea is that, you know, in a, in a fully glass cockpit and more and more machines are going that way, is there anything different that we need to, you know, do with our visual scan, or does it? Is there vision science that goes into creating the displays that we actually see as far as contrast and the colours that they use? Hmm. I see what you're saying. Yes. I think we're still in the experimental stage on that. Think about when we had our nice round steam gauges, and on one plane that I flew. When the airspeed needle was about at the um, 3 o'clock position, that was um, a good approach speed. Well, now with uh, some of the video displays, it's a tape, and you have to actually read a number. That takes more neurological effort to read and interpret. And so in some ways... I think we would be smart if some of our video displays displayed pictures of steam gauges, and I've seen that some of them are actually going back to that now. So this just is a good example of the fact that we don't have all the answers yet about what's going to work best. Uh, One interesting thing that that does bring up, however, and that is that In the past, when all the gauges were needles uh, where you could read a position or read a number too, color vision defects were not very important. In fact, they were probably mainly important if you're going into an airport without a radio and needed to read light gun signals. But... Now, with some of the new cockpit displays and the fact that they're basically color-coded, we're hearing that some of the pilots who 
been flying for years, have a harder time with these cockpits uh, displays because of their color vision deficiency. So I'm not sure what the authorities are going to be doing as far as color vision deficiencies, but they they may start getting a little tougher on that issue. Hmm, interesting. All right, Warren, basically there's two more sort of areas here to, to ask you about. Is one, uh, well, the first one is, you know, what can we do to improve our eyesight or, or maintain it for longer? And, and the second part goes into when people start, you know, failing their eyesight tests, um, you know, what are some of the steps they should look at before they, they write away their career? So if we look at that first one, you know, someone who's sitting here who's, you know, 25, 35, 45, and they're out flying currently and they've got, you know, whatever eyesight they've currently got, uh, you know, how can we stretch that and keep that eyesight for as long as we can? Or is there any ways to actually improve your visual acuity? The answer to that is kind of the same answer that neuropsychologists tell us about preventing uh, or delaying senility or Alzheimer's. It's diet and exercise. Maintaining the proper weight, very, very important all throughout life. But the other thing is that when we exercise, we get better blood flow through the brain, through the eyes, and that keeps them healthier. Now, there are also certain eye exercises that people can do, and they're valuable for people that have um, certain deficiencies. For example, if their eyes tend to turn out, a person can be trained to control that much more easily. But some of the programs that are out there that promise to get rid of your myopia, your nearsightedness, or keep you from having cataracts uh, by doing certain eye exercises, uh, my opinion is those are pretty imaginative. But there's no doubt that just taking care of your health in general and um, getting plenty of exercise, it's good for everything, including the eyes. Fair enough. All right, the second part of that one was, Warren, yeah, once we you know, start hitting those medicals and the, the letters get harder and harder to see on the, on the eye chart, uh, I guess there's, you know, first steps would be, as you, we've talked about, surgery options. But um, the other one would be glasses or contacts. Is there particular glasses that you recommend for people in terms of, you know, bifocals or graduated lenses? Any recommendations for people who are in that point where they might be looking at, at getting glasses? Yeah, certainly. Um, you brought up the subject of bifocals or trifocals and or uh, graduated lenses, sometimes called progressive lenses. Here's what I have told my patients about progressive lenses. Um, they they're more difficult to learn to use, but they give you a much greater capability. Because with them, you can focus at every distance uh, without having to jump from just one fixed focus to another. Um, My airline pilots, I would say, you know, it isn't too hard to learn to fly a Cessna 152. But to fly your airliner, that took a lot more time, didn't it? Well, the glasses are kind of like that. Bifocal's pretty easy. You put it on. You have a pretty good idea about where to look right away. But it has limited capabilities. The progressive lens has so much greater a a range, a variable range. But it's like learning to fly the airliner. It takes longer to learn to use it. And with that concept, most of them did very well. So you will find some people that try the progressive lenses and say, oh, gosh, 
you know, it's too narrow a focus and and uh, I just can't get used to having to aim my eyes at what I'm looking at. But maybe they, you know, got them at some cheap place that <laughs> doesn't have a very good progressive lens, too. There's a, there's a huge range of quality in progressive lenses. And, and uh, some of the cheaper ones have a very, very narrow channel in the center through which you have good vision. So when it comes to presbyopia, which we all get to in our 40s and older, I think the progressive lenses are best, but unfortunately, they're not cheap. At least good ones are not cheap, but how important are your eyes? And your your career, I guess, too, and your your passion for flying when it gets to that point. That's right, yep. You know, I used to say to some of my patients, uh, how many sport cuts do you have? Oh, let's see. I guess I've got about five of them. And said, you know, you don't wear one of them all the time, do you? Well, no. But you're going to wear this one pair of glasses all the time. I think that's, I think that's pretty important. There's <laughs> yes, a concert I come up <clears throat> with my wife. It's called uh, a cost per use. And so when she gets a new pair of shoes, <laughs> I break it down and say, okay, what's the cost per use? Mm-hmm. So, and the same thing, you know, for a phone or anything like that, you know, your phone on you the whole time. Warren, when folks get that nudge from the doctor and they're saying, hey, look, you know, your vision's getting, you know, to the point where I can't actually sign you off. What are some of the issues? Obviously, it's not like a, you know, a yes or no um, stop or, you know, your career's come to a complete stop. What are the options as far as risk mitigation and, I guess, medical restrictions that you've been involved in with uh, getting pilots still to be able to fly? Uh, even if their vision is uh, starting to deteriorate? Here in the United States, we could often get a statement of demonstrated ability, uh, sometimes called a waiver. And so, for example, I had several patients who were one-eyed. Obviously, being one-eyed doesn't satisfy the stated standard requirements. But for many types of flying, one eye is all you need. And I can't remember the numbers right now, but I think they're something like um, 500 pilots with first-class certificates that are effectively one-eyed and a couple thousand that have second-class for commercial privileges and I think there was something like 7,000 that have third-class medicals for general aviation, private flying, that are effectively one-eyed. So that's just an example. The FAA wants to help people fly. They really do. But they don't want people out there that will be unsafe. And so... If someone has um, any medical problem, you know, they they should talk to their aviation medical examiner about it. If it's an eye situation, I, I did a lot of waiver applications for pilots, for color vision and one eye not correcting fully and and um, a whole, whole raft of issues. So they need not, you know, give up just because they don't have a perfect situation right away. The other thing to keep keep in mind is that even though they may have something that might prevent them from being an airline captain, they there are certainly many, many types of careers in aviation that are nevertheless still open to them. If people are listening to this morning and I guess want to find out a few more details or dig a bit deeper, is there somewhere that's a good place you recommend people to go or is there somewhere they can get in contact with you? Oh, um, they could certainly contact me. Um, my email address is my initials, WDH, Whiskey Delta Hotel, at comcast.net. 
C-O-M-C-A-S-T dot net. And my phone number is 303-499-4582. That needs a one in front of it for the United States, of course. But sure, I'm always glad to answer questions and in many cases uh, point them in the right direction. Well, look, it's just, yeah, it's one of those areas that uh, affects every single one of us flying. And at some point in our career, it could be the, the thing that sort of scares us because you can have control over, you know, how much you can study and how hard you can work and things like that. But uh, sometimes when it's a, a bodily function and something like sight, it's uh, not that much you can do about it. So uh, thank you, Warren. Yeah, it's good to, to get that background information uh, that we wouldn't normally get to. So very appreciated. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. How did you find that? Given that our sight and our eyes are some of the the most critical things involved in in flying helicopters, the more we know about how it works and more importantly how and when sometimes it doesn't work so well, it just has to make us better at our jobs. So all Warren's information there about glasses, surgery, and options if your vision does start to degrade, I think it's going to be you know really helpful to a, a lot of folks. It's a, a massive thing being made medically unfit to fly, you know, for any reason, but especially for your sight. It's not just the loss of a, a job and an income, but so many of us get our, our sense of purpose and identity from our aviation career, along with that community feeling of belonging, you know, to the tribe. And so when you lose all that in one go, it's a it's a big hit. And Warren's approach is very much that if it's possible and safe for you to keep flying, then there are adaptations and waivers that might get you around the standard set of published requirements. My own history is that, uh, you know, I was really lucky to be applying for Army Flying at a time when the vision requirements had just been relaxed a little to allow for the wearing of uh, prescription lenses. A few years earlier, and I might have met a brick wall there, and that would have been it. So I'll be forever grateful for the uh, Army doctor at the time, who was uh, Craig Schramm, who provided a waiver. And I was very excited to get that letter in the mail. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. If you've got some additional questions for Warren or a good story to tell about um, aviation vision or the things that tie in with vision on the flying, then jump on the website and you can continue the conversation in the comments under this episode. And I'll respond there. And, you know, again, we'll get Warren back in to answer some questions there too if you need him to. All right, slightly different topic. So last Sunday night here at Australian Time, I ran a online live call with uh, past guest Dennis Kenyon. So Dennis, if you remember, is a UK helicopter display pilot. He's still in, he's still flying somewhere there in his 80s, and we covered several you know topics or parts of his career that we didn't necessarily uh, touch on so much in the uh, the podcast interviews. And Dennis spoke through a collection of his photos that we had up on the the screen that he'd uh, collected over the years and some of the things he's been up to. Dennis has just recently released a, a crime novel called Dangerous Appointment, which features a helicopter pilot as a, the main character, and also helicopter flying you know, throughout the, the storyline uh, there. So we spoke about the background to the book, and again, we covered the Dennis Kenyon Jr. Uh, scholarship, with, uh, and also all proceeds from the book go towards that scholarship and supporting someone to learn to fly. We had a couple of people jump on and ask their questions live uh, with Dennis, which was uh, pretty cool from around the world. And the whole thing was recorded. So I'll edit that shortly into a, a video replay uh, that will be available. If you'd like to get your hands on that, then make sure you signed up to the email list on the uh, website, rotarywingshow.com, and I'll send out updates there because the audio version doesn't really stand alone. You need the uh, the visuals and the, and the slides and Dennis's photos uh, to make that uh, all sort of come together and make sense. You can also go get, get Dennis's book over on Amazon. The name of the book is Dangerous Appointment. And on the cover, you'll see a squirrel or an A-star uh, helicopter there. Make it easy to spot. But a big thanks to everyone who reaches out uh, during the week and gets in contact with me and sends me messages and, and about what you're up to and where you are in the world. It's awesome to sort of get that feedback and hear uh, what you guys are doing. And this is a email from, from listener Josh. I just wanted to let you know I've been really enjoying listening to the podcast. My name is Josh. And I'm currently living here in Brisbane, working for a few months. I live in the US, in Kansas more specifically, and I started training in the R22 when I was 12 years old. And long story short, 
never finished my training due to the written exam. I have about 30 hours, 8 hours solo, and when I was younger, I just couldn't force myself to sit down and study the, the ground material. I just wanted to, to fly. Also, I had to save up for each lesson, so I wasn't flying regularly, which you know how that goes. And I realized I needed to quit wasting money and time until I could afford more consistent training and pass the knowledge exam. I'm finally to that point in my life, and I've been studying since I've arrived here. Your podcast has really inspired me and has brought back the overwhelming excitement of just thinking about flying helicopters. I miss flying so much. It has been about five years since my last flight, and Josh is now 25. Again, I just wanted to let you know that you've greatly inspired me, and I can't thank you enough. Uh, Please keep the podcast coming. Cheers, Josh. Hey, Josh, thanks, buddy, and we will try and catch up definitely while you're still here in Brisbane. And uh, look, lots more topics still to cover, so I'll keep the episodes coming as long as you guys keep listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you're on Twitter or Facebook, you'll also find the show there. Just look for Rotary Wing Show. Also, don't forget about World Helicopter Day. So worldhelicopterday.com is where the info is at. And talk to the people at your work and your company and get them involved to see if you can't hold a open day as a part of that. Thanks for joining us. This has been episode 25. Pleasure as always to be able to bring you the show. I'm Mick Cullen and wishing you a safe week. I'll see you back here next time.